0: Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, an HBO two-part documentary series explores racial bias in a small upstate town.
1: I think it's very important, again, to come back to the historical uh, context of everything. When viewers see this, they're going to see how every black person must react to the police. And the way every black person must react to the police is With respect, with intelligence, and with courage. Because if you react in any other way, you're going to be doing 25 for life.
0: Robert Morgenthau died on Sunday. He was Manhattan's longest-serving district attorney, holding the post for 34 years. On the whole, he was well-respected, but he also presided over a city criminal justice system beset by allegations of racial bias. Some of the most high-profile cases during his tenure centered around racial discrimination. The lax prosecution of, quote-unquote, vigilante Bernard Goetz, who shot four black men on the subway. The non-prosecution of the police officers involved in the killing of graffiti artist Michael Stewart. And, most famously, the rush to justice and railroading of the Central Park Five. His death brings into focus questions about criminal justice and race and whether black people can be treated fairly by the system. A story that supports a negative conclusion, that they can't, is the focus of HBO's Who Killed Garrett Phillips, a two-part documentary series directed by Oscar-nominated filmmaker Liz Garbus. It premieres on July 23rd, and right now we are delighted to talk to a key figure in the story, defense attorney Manai Tafari. Welcome to bk
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So we should get right out of the way that um, there is no spoiler to this. We know how this trial ends, right?
1: Well, thankfully, yes, Um, this was a wrongful prosecution, but thankfully it was not a wrongful conviction. Uh, We were able to be successful with a really good support team for Mr. Hillary.
0: Right. And so we know that who killed Garrett Phillips, Nick Hillary was not convicted of this and we'll play just a little bit from the documentary so people can get the contours of the story. Both units on scene with an unresponsive 10 year old male. The scene was handled
1: as a crime scene. The mother is Tandy Cyrus. Tandy's ex boyfriend, Nick Hillary, was suspicious. Garrett didn't like it. Those two butted heads. We have strong
0: suspect at this point. You're going to hear the six of relationship.
1: We've got some problems. Hillary is responsible for Garrett's death. No doubt, my mind, he did it. Nick hey, Hillary. Hillary. Hillary.
0: Hillary. Next, the guy.
1: I'm 100% certain.
0: Am I living in a dream
1: right now, or this is really happening? As a person of color, you're told, don't talk to the police. Nick called me saying, the cops won't let me leave. You don't strip search someone naked for anything. You do have to raise questions as to why they chose Nick Hillary. So
0: you are a friend of Nick Hillary's, as well as a, a lawyer, a defense attorney, who represented him in a civil case Uh, Against the county is that right?
1: That's correct. Um, I had to play both roles. Uh, He needed a good friend and he also needed a good attorney Uh, Luckily, I was able to step in and fill that void
0: and how did you originally meet Nick?
1: I met Nick as a high school uh, junior, uh, He recruited me to come and play for St. Lawrence University, which was a school he was attending. Uh, I actually ended up playing at St. Lawrence University with Nick Hillary as a captain.
0: And soccer, right? In
1: soccer, yes. yes. Uh, we were very successful. We were able to win a national championship. Uh, I thought the experience of my life that I would have with Nick Hillary was winning a national championship that I would tell my kids about. But um, as it turned out, there's other stories that I'll have to tell my kids at this point.
0: And so you and Nick played together on this championship winning team. Yes. And he talks a little bit in the documentary about how it was different being a a student in upstate New York as opposed to when he then entered normal life and was working and had a job. Talk to me a little bit about what Nick's experience was like after he graduated and settled down there?
1: Well, as a student, we both had similar experiences. Um, we were part of a great soccer team. Uh, we went to a really good university, and everyone loved us. We had love from the professors, we had love from the students, we had love from the community, from everyone.
0: Everyone loves a winner.
1: Everyone loves a winner. Um, now, after Nick had left and began coaching up there, he got a feel for what the community really is when you're not a college soccer player or on a college soccer-winning team. So um, the first I heard of any issues was Nick had called me and said he's being harassed by the police. This was back in 2010, a year before the murder of Garrett Phillips happened.
0: Oh, really? So he reached out to you to tell you that he had faced uh, issues with the police even before Garrett Phillips?
1: Yes, about a year before. He had informed me that he had started a relationship with a young lady and her ex-boyfriend, unfortunately, was harassing um, uh, both the young lady, Tandy Cyrus and Mr. Hillary by sending threatening text messages, uh, threatening to kick, his, kick in his door and kick his ass. Tandy Cyrus wrote four letters of complaints against this sheriff uh, and sent them out to his boss and the heads of the county, uh, basically saying that she fears for her life, uh, the safety of her sons, um, because of the ways that the sheriff was acting. Nick Hillary also wrote uh, complaints about this very same sheriff because he was in fear. Uh, This was a deputy sheriff in town going after a a black man at five o'clock in the morning because he felt as though Mr. Hillary was uh, speaking to his girl.
0: Mm -hmm. So this was in 2010. And a year later, Garrett Phillips, Tandy Cyrus's 12-year-old son, was murdered.
1: Yes. About 10 months after uh, Mr. Hillary and Ms. Cyrus sent letters complaining about the sheriff uh, was when the murder actually took place.
0: And immediately Nick Hillary falls under suspicion.
1: Immediately the cops went to his house uh, within minutes after Garrett died Um, About an hour after Garrett died. They were knocking at his door uh, attempting to interview him asking him about where he was so
0: now it seems fairly uh, Typical I guess after the death of somebody to go and interview those closest to him Um, I imagine ex-boyfriends of the mother would you know make a short list of people he would want to go and talk to What was atypical about how the police went about this?
1: What was atypical was the fact that Nick Hillary was the only ex-boyfriend whose name was leaked to the media by the police as soon as this happened. Uh, He was also the only ex-boyfriend who was strip searched. And you'll see a whole lot more of this once you see the documentary uh, as well. But he was the only ex-boyfriend who was treated like an animal, like second class citizen by the authorities. And he was also the only ex-boyfriend who was a man of color as well.
0: The other ex-boyfriend who you mentioned, the one who was a former sheriff, um, who Tandy Cyrus had written letters to his superior saying that she feared for her and her son's life. Was he interviewed at all? Was he put on a short list of potential suspects?
1: Um, He was a part of the investigation. So he was able to go to the investigation headquarters. He was able to give lead sheets and assist When the you police. say he was a
0: part of the investigation, you mean not as a suspect, but not as, as an a, investigator. Um,
1: they told us later he was a suspect, but what we do have, and again, when you watch the movie, you'll see this, uh, he was the one who was actually giving leads to the police. Uh, the police was treating him, were treating him uh, like a fellow police officer who's trying to crack this case. Uh, so he had access to all the information the police had. He had access to the mom. He was sitting right there during the interviews the very next day. And also from my depositions I did with the lead investigators and the police chief, uh, I found out he was best friends with the lead investigator and the police chief as well.
0: That's a really striking piece of footage from the documentary. When they pull in Garrett Phillips's mom for the first time for her first interview with the police, you have her ex-boyfriend also the former sheriff, sitting right next to her, holding her hand very tightly. Uh, And at first you think, oh, it's, you know, so nice that she has somebody to lean on in these times. Then you learn more about their involvement and it becomes very troubling.
1: Um, And when you see the the prototype of how they dealt with that situation, it tells you all you need to know. Immediately, you have two ex-boyfriends, one's being strip searched and one's being hugged by the lead investigator. And I think right there within 24 hours of a crime like this, you automatically see that there's a big difference. And the only distinguishing character that I could see, at least, uh, was the color of Mr. Hillary's skin um, and the color of Mr. Jones's skin.
0: Why was he strip searched?
1: I think they wanted to break him down and they wanted to embarrass him. They wanted to get him his psychology so low where he understood that he has no hope, no chance, uh, no way to fight this because they're in control. And he's not one of the attorneys actually referred to it as akin to the old slave trade. What they did to him was basically to embarrass him and break him down.
0: What was the legal reason that they gave for strip searching him? How is this? allowed
1: there's absolutely no legal reason um for them to strip search him but again uh they claim that it was from uh it was because they had a warrant
0: right they said that they were looking for signs of injury since whoever killed garrett phillips jumped from a window and apparently that required uh, His entire, is being shown. Exactly. Yep. Right. Exactly. So um, walk it back a little bit. When did you first hear from Nick? What point did he contact you and ask for help?
1: That would be Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning, the 26th, which was two days after the murder, actually a day and a half after the murder. I was working at Rikers Island as, at the time as a parole defense attorney. I received the call that he was at the police station. He told me the cops would not let him go. And as soon as I heard those words, I started driving that uh seven-hour trek up to upstate New York uh, because I had felt this was going to be a frame job. And at the point he told me he was there and not allowed to leave, I knew that the frame job had started.
0: That's not legal, by the way,
1: right? No, it's not. He had all the rights to walk out of there and leave. But again, these guys were not operating from a legal standpoint. These guys were operating from a standpoint of um, we're white cops and we have a black man here and we're going to do what we want.
0: So you mentioned that immediately you thought this is going to be a frame job. What made you think that?
1: Even before being an attorney, I've always been a student of history. And you see these things time and time again. You don't need to be an attorney. Uh, You see what happened to uh, the Central Park Five, as you mentioned before. Uh, You saw what happened to the Scottsboro Boys. They were railroaded while they were on a railroad. So they've been doing this to us now uh, in this country since 1619. So it wasn't a stretch for me to say you have a dead 12 year old and the one black man in town that the police had been harassing before, they're gonna pin this murder on him. Uh, and that turned out to be uh, true.
0: There's a lot of footage from inside the police department when they are first questioning Nick Hillary. Um, and there are some things that Nick says and does that in follow-up interviews with the white police officers, they think means that he's very suspicious, You know, refusing to answer questions, for example. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the interactions uh, between Nick and the police that white people, white viewers, those cops definitely might view as suspicious, uh, but that Nick might have had different reasons for doing things the way that he did?
1: I think it's very important, again, to come back to the historical uh, context of everything. When viewers see this, they're going to see how every black person must React to the police. And the way every black person must react to the police is with respect, with intelligence, and with courage. And those are the three things Mr. Hillary used. At no point uh, did he raise his voice. However, he stood firm. He uh, requested his Sixth Amendment right, uh, which was the right to counsel, and he wouldn't answer their questions. It's important to understand that the police refused to put a timeline out for the murder. Before they spoke to Mr. Hillary. And the plan was to take Mr. Hillary's timeline and then bend the time of the murder within that and destroy his alibi. Knowing this, Mr. Hillary uses intelligence, requested his Sixth Amendment right, refused to answer any more questions because during that interrogation, he picked up right away um, that this was going to be a framing. Um, I think white people need to put themselves in his situation as well because you've seen making a murderer. You've seen white people get convicted and framed. And again, once you're respecting a police officer and you're using your intelligence and you're not answering questions, that's exactly how you need to react to the police. Exactly how. Because if you react in any other way, you're gonna be doing 25 to life.
0: Right, and from the white police officer's perspective, he says, well, the fact that he wasn't talking to us, that immediately made him suspicious, and of course, I wonder if a white person stated that I would like my Sixth Amendment rights to not talk to you if they would view that as suspicious or just somebody exercising their rights? Well,
1: not at all. Not at all. And you make a great point right there. Um, I had a chance to depose both the chief of police and the lead investigator, Mark Murray, who was interviewed. And one of the questions I asked them was, why was Mr. Hillary a suspect? And they said, well, his story didn't add up. And I said, what was his story? And they said, we didn't have one because he wouldn't talk to us. (laughs) So, I mean, when you really think about this kind of logic, that's what you're facing. Uh, So by not speaking with these police officers, it's the smartest thing that Mr. Hillary could do. Um, And unless you know that you're working with people who want to solve a crime and not just want to convict you, uh, that's the only way you can do it.
0: I'm thinking of the moments that we discussed where Nick Hillary is strip searched, where he is not allowed to leave, even though he is free to go. Um, There's another moment where his cell phone is taken away from him. What? Do you advise your clients to do when their rights are being violated by police officers in the police station?
1: Be respectful, be civil, but never cooperate. Um, And again, black man cooperating with police officers is akin to digging your grave. Uh, There's too many black people throughout history who walk into a police station as a witness and they leave as a suspect or worse. Um, Your job is not to cooperate with police unless you're a police officer yourself, unless you're getting paid to cooperate. Uh, Your job is to maintain your freedom as long as possible. So again, the reason why every black person needs to watch this is to see how Mr. Hillary reacted because that's the only way you could react and remain free in this society in this time. So my advice to all my clients is that cooperating with police is digging your own grave. You need to stay silent and you need to speak to a lawyer. And that's what every good lawyer will tell you. You do not need to go to a police station. You do not need to cooperate with police regardless. And that's the smartest thing you could do is to stay silent and call a lawyer.
0: It's truly remarkable watching Nick Hillary's behavior in this scene because you know you understand that he wants to help, that obviously a young boy has been murdered, just like any of us would want to help that investigation. And then you slowly realize that he sees that they are gonna try to frame this for him and he has to figure out a way, as you said, to be respectful, but also to watch out for himself.
1: Well, you see the wheels turning, right? And you see the wheels turning with the police officers as well when they understand that they're dealing with an intelligent black man. Um, And I've said this before. The one thing the system does not like are black men who are both courageous and intelligent. Uh, They can work with one or the other. But once you hit them with both, they dislike that. And that's what they had with Mr. Hillary. The wheels started turning with Hillary. He saw that this was a frame job. The wheels started turning with them and they saw that they could not trick this man into confessing. So they tried the other route. They tried to scare him into confessing. And again, you're talking about a former soldier. So whatever you guys were about to do, it was not going to work with him because this is a courageous, intelligent black man.
0: There's been in many cities a complete and total breakdown of trust and communication between communities of color and the police. And this documentary makes it very clear why. Do you see a path forward, a path out of a situation where the best thing that people of color can do is to not cooperate with police under any circumstance? And what needs to happen in order for us to get there? Uh,
1: I do believe that's the case. Um, I think, just to take it back to a historical context, uh, we saw what happened in the 60s and 50s. We saw water hoses being used on people of color and black people. And there was never a civil war that was won within any of these police forces where that was changed and the good guys took over. So what we have right now is that very same mentality of how you treat black people how you view them as citizens or non-citizens, and that's too prevalent in too many of these police forces. And uh, we're not here to um, cooperate with police or help them to incarcerate us. We're here to remain free um, and to maintain our right to freedom. And black people at this point, I think, are in a stage where uh, we don't have a choice but to remain silent and ask for attorneys regardless of the situation.
0: Do you feel like the way that Nick Hillary comported himself um, by being respectful but refusing to cooperate, do you think that ultimately helped him get acquitted for this?
1: It did. Mm -hmm. It did. That is the blueprint. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're ever in a situation similar to that, you have to cut and paste what Mr. Hillary did and do it yourself because that is the blueprint of how to stay free. No matter how good your attorney is, most of what attorneys like myself do, uh, we do what's called suppression hearings. And in those suppression hearings, your lawyer basically spends months and sometimes years trying to suppress or to get thrown out the things that you have said. So if you don't say anything, you're doing half the work or most Stop of the digging. work. Stop digging. Mm-hmm. You're doing most of the work for your attorney because, and a young man asked me the other day, how come uh, we don't get as good a plea deals and like these rich guys? And I say, well, these rich guys have attorneys speaking to them about not talking to police before they talk to police. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're listening to this program right now, Uh, If you're watching, uh, you need to understand the importance of maintaining your right to silence. Um, And we have three. We have four, five, and six. Your Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights are what will save your life. But we need to know them like the back of our hands, especially if you're black in America today.
0: I keep on coming back to this idea that police and district attorneys view the right to silence when a person of color exercises it as an admission of guilt or that immediately they're under suspicion. And now I'm thinking about the actual trial where Nick Hillary's daughter testifies and the district attorney keeps on going after her um, saying that she has been overly coached by you. And at times when she says that she doesn't recall, you know, a detail of what she ate for dinner, whatever he's like, Oh, did your attorney tell you to say, I don't recall as if, as if that's, in, as if that's not, a, not a correct thing to say.
1: Correct, and great observation, by the way, and research. Um, uh, the hero in this entire thing, um, the judge was a good judge. Uh, there was no evidence, so he said not guilty. But the hero in this entire thing is Shanna K. Hillary, and that's Mr. Hillary's um, 21-year-old daughter. She was 15 at the time. And the fact that you have a district attorney who was district attorney for 30 years bullying an 18-year-old girl And she was able to stand strong with the truth by her side. Uh, That's what you have here. Uh, You have people in positions of power like this DA uh, Fitzpatrick from Syracuse, who's willing to bully a little girl simply because she's telling the truth for her father. So, again, she was the hero in all this. Um, And when you have good lawyers from the get go again or lawyers who are advising you what you need to do at the outset, not afterwards, that's how you can defeat a crooked system and a corrupt system.
0: We're jumping around a little bit, but I want to come back to after Nick Hillary has been interviewed by the police. The district attorney at the time declines to indict because there isn't enough evidence, um, despite people in town demanding Nick Hillary's head on a plate. You then, as his attorney, file a civil suit against the county, the city, the police Um, department?
1: It was against the county and the police department Okay, and and the village. That's correct.
0: Talk to me about the decision to bring this civil case
1: Well, once Mr. Hillary was strip-searched and defamed by the police officers, um, we understood what was happening. Uh, The police were going to charge Mr. Hillary. Uh, What we did um, was file a civil case within 90 days because you're going up against a municipality. By doing that, uh, we received the entire police file. And once we received the entire police file, we had an idea of not just uh, the fact that Mr. Hillary didn't do it, but we were able to uncover the conspiracy. During the trial, uh, the DAs and the police tried to hide evidence. Uh, We had the entire police file, so we would explain to the criminal attorneys, here's the evidence they're trying to hide. Uh, They tried to change testimony of witnesses. I was also able to depose a chief of police and lead investigator and find out not only that Mr. Hillary had nothing to do with this, but there was a conspiracy to get him on this. I think in a lot of ways, that's the reason why we were able to expose this. Uh, That's the reason why we were able to figure out what they were trying to do and, more importantly, to stop it. Um, So the
0: actual civil case was a bit of a red herring. This was a, a tactic that you were using in order to get files that you otherwise wouldn't have had access to. Is that correct?
1: Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but we did get files that we had no access to. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing with the law is that civil discovery is much more liberal than criminal discovery. So while in a criminal case, the DA picks and chooses what they were able to give you, in a civil case, after receiving all the discovery with the ability to uh, depose police officers for six hours before a trial, That made it much easier for us to go into what we knew would be uh, a frame job and have enough support and enough of a shield and a sword to fight that when it came.
0: Now, the flip side is that Nick Hillary was also deposed and that this provided um, some of the ammunition for them to go ahead and indict him and charge him for this crime.
1: Well, that's a claim of the district attorney. Mm. Um, The ammunition that they had was the fact that they knew they would get a racist jury of 12 people and they would get a conviction. Uh, But what the civil case brought out when they deposed them, the only thing they got from Mr. Hillary was that he made a left turn in a white town. Um, Besides that fact, there was nothing at all they received from it. But of course... They had no evidence to charge him, so they had to manipulate uh, and tell the people that something in the civil case led to his arrest. But once you see the movie, you totally understand that what they had against Mr. Hillary was making a left turn in a town. Um, And that's not enough to indict someone. That's not enough to even interview someone on a serious level uh, for a crime like this.
0: So you go into jury selection. The criminal defense team goes into jury selection. A jury is selected.
1: Ten jurors are selected.
0: And then what happens? Uh,
1: They select 10 juries. Um, Hillary and I had been talking all along about the possibility of waiving a jury and going with a judge, which I thought was the best move. Uh, They select 10 white jurors, um, and then a young black gentleman was selected, and the DA was um, on the jury panel, and the DAs were adamant that this man had to be kicked off.
0: A single black person.
1: One single black person. And the DAs were absolutely adamant he could not be on there. The young black man was kicked off the jury, I then got on the phone, uh, spoke with Nick again, we talked for a little bit, and um, it was clear that we we were not going to have 12 white people decide his fate.
0: Now, I'm not super familiar with how voir dire works, but my understanding is that each, um, each side gets some challenges, gets to throw people out that they think aren't going to be fair uh, to their side of the case. Correct. Was it so impossible to find people who would be impartial?
1: Well, out of the ten jurors that were seated, um, a friend of Mary Rain, who was the DA, was one of the ten. How is also, that?
0: How is that possible? How is that admissible? Like, how is that not challenged by the defense, for example?
1: Um, I don't think it should have happened. Um, I was adamant that a bench trial uh, happened from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you're dealing with people who did not say to the defense attorneys, hey, this is my buddy. Uh, so two of those jury, jurors that were seated uh, were friends of the Phillips family and friend of, friends of Mary Rain. So um, these people, uh, the prosecution up there in the police force, knew that they had to get a conviction. And I think once you understand that. Um, at a base level, then you understand that they were going to do this, as Malcolm said, by any means necessary.
0: That was a shocking moment in the documentary when Mary Rain, the DA, admits it freely as if it's not a problem where she was like, I thought that we did an excellent job of seating the jury. In fact, one of my friends is on the jury and I know him to be a very impartial guy.
1: And that's why unless you approach this thing with intelligence and unless every single decision you make was thought through and smart, uh, you would have had an innocent man doing time in jail right now. Um, But we went into this uh, with eyes wide open. Uh, We knew who we were dealing with, and every counsel that we gave Nick Hillary uh, was for him to understand that as well.
0: It makes me question if it's possible at all for an outsider to get a fair trial in a small town where everybody knows everybody.
1: It's impossible. And you have to understand, not only is Mr. Hillary an outsider in a very small town, but these are people who've been poisoned for five years by the people they trust, by the police, by the district attorney, by the newscasters, a lot of them, that this man is guilty. And the one thing you learn in life is that perception is reality. And even though there was not a single shred, not a shred of evidence against Mr. Hillary here, uh, there were 150 pieces of DNA samples, there were fingerprints, none of it matched Nick, but perception is reality. And when people look at a black face from that community, they see a criminal and that's what would have convicted him regardless of the evidence.
0: That is one of the most heartbreaking parts of this. At the end, when the acquittal is handed down, you see Nick Hillary burst into tears and you also see Garrett Phillips' family burst into tears because they believe with all of their hearts that Nick Hillary murdered Garrett Phillips. And the power of this marketing campaign Based on no factual evidence, um, the way that it has sunk into that town and that everybody in town believes that a guilty man got off is just so painful to watch to the point where they aren't even looking for who actually killed Garrett Phillips. The D.A. says the man who killed Garrett Phillips just got off.
1: You're absolutely right. And the word that you used is brilliant, the campaign. Um, this was a campaign. Uh, Mary Rain had ran for office, like you'd stated earlier, promising to convict Mr. Hillary. Um, there was a petition of signed by 2,000 people to keep Mr. Hillary in jail and sent to the judge. 2,000 people signed a petition within a couple of days. That does not happen unless it's a political campaign. So this community really fought hard, not for justice, not for justice, but for vengeance against Mr. Hillary. And the fact that he stood firm through all that and kept his dignity, I think is remarkable.
0: So you practice law in New York State. up until very recently, New York had some of the worst disclosure laws in the country. This changed recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what changed and how that may potentially help clients like Nick Hillary or other clients who you may work with?
1: Well, the changes just happened, but they won't go into effect until January 1st. These are discovery changes. Uh, normally in New York, uh, a defendant and his defense lawyer would not get the evidence, much of the evidence against them, until, you know, a day before trial or the day off trial. What they're changing now with the discovery reform is that someone is going to, a defendant is going to know everything the prosecution has against him uh, beforehand.
0: That seems very reasonable.
1: It is. Um, and that's what helped Mr. Hillary because we had that. But the reason we had that was because we did the civil case and we had the police file. So it's very hard to frame someone when both sides have the evidence. So if we're gonna play this thing fair, and prosecutors should be the good guys in court, uh, all the evidence should be turned over to the defense. And if we're all uh, playing with clean hands, that should have been the way it always was. But hopefully in January that will change and we'll have ethical DAs. DAs will understand that their role is to fight for justice to implement some of these changes as well.
0: One of the other things that this documentary brings to light is how DAs have to fight for their jobs, because it's an elected office over and over, and so you see Mary Rain launching this campaign to be elected based on the fact that she will secure a conviction for Garrett Phillips. Um, you see William Fitzpatrick uh, also sweeping in and wanting to get his hands on this this case because it's a high-profile murder case, and he publicity. also it's publicity exactly, and they face the voters. Do you? think that we will ever know who killed Garrett Phillips? Is there institutional will to try and find someone, the person who actually did this?
1: There is no institutional will, uh, but I think we will know who killed Garrett. After the acquittal, the prosecutors came out afterwards and said, we're not going to go further. The police came out afterwards and said, we're not going to go further. Uh, But I want people to think um, this is not a a multi-country conspiracy with secret agents um, that was covered up. This is the death of a little boy by someone who was at his apartment on that day. Um, I think if you start searching and start looking to find a solution for this and solve this case, it's a very easy case to solve. Uh, but I think there's no will from the family. I think there's no will from law enforcement. And I think what Liz Garbus did was genius because I think she's going to get the will from all good-thinking people in America, and, and they're going to they're gonna solve this.
0: Where is Nick now, and what does his life look like after this whole ordeal?
1: He is um, uh, raising his five children, uh, five beautiful children. Um, uh, Two of them are very young kids um, and he spends as much time as he can with them every single day. He's also coaching soccer part-time and he really wants to use his story to educate. Uh, Every time I speak to Nick, every chance I have, he just keeps telling me we we need prosecutorial oversight. We need reform of the system. Because he does not want what happened to him to happen to anybody else, because he understands uh, that it's very rare to have the support that he did uh, to get out of this. So he wants to be that voice for people who don't have one.
0: Manai, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Mackenzie. It was great.
0: And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to know your fourth, fifth, sixth amendment rights. You can also review 112BK on iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bagosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Solo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.